0: James, Duncan. how are you today, dude? I'm well, dude. How are you? I'm good. All right. Welcome to tricks where James and I talk about a topic. Um, this week is the first time we're actually continuing on a topic from last time, Yay. which is the Frankfurt School. Um, and so this is based on a bunch of uh, episodes from Philosophize This, um, and Stephen West, I just think, is possibly one of the smartest people going around. He's, the way he articulates things is unbelievable. Awesome human. And- awesome human. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in the intervening time, I actually listened to all the episodes again. I think there's like six of them. Yeah. And I listened to them again and I was like, I swear to God, I didn't listen to these the first time. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, every single thing in there was like new. And I'm like, did I, like, did I actually, because like, I thought I learned some stuff from them the last time. And I'd written out some points to talk to you about James. But I listened to them again and I was like, this is jam-packed 100% of awesomeness which, which And I was, I was like, I, I swear to God, I, I, this is 100% new. And so, yeah, I, I thought that was just a bit funny.
1: <laughs> uh, I, no, I have to um, substantiate that. Like, I remember the feeling I had listening to the first time. Like, oh my God, this is like fundamentally changing my views of <laughs> the model of society. And then, thank to you, Duncan, I re-listened to it <clears throat> less than a week ago. I'm like, oh my God, this is fundamentally changing my views. <laughs> um, but even more to the point, I get the same feeling listening to our own podcast.
0: Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Um, we'll listen to, I'll re-listen to our podcast sometimes, like, well, I don't know, three months later. And I'll be like, who's, who's talking this? I know it sounds like me. But like, one, I don't recall saying it, like, and two, I'm learning all these things. I'm like, well, I don't recall saying it. I'm learning from myself. But the best part is that I normally listen to it 24 hours after we did it. And you've got hopefully a really good, pretty good memory of what you did 24 hours ago. And I will learn a hell of a lot from just listening to myself again. And I think the reason for this is that there's new information that comes through. And the new piece can join on to... So, information is kind of what you can join it onto. So, a new piece actually comes into your mind. Mm. Can you join it onto like three or four other things? Yeah. And so, when I listen to it again, I'll make new connections and then it'll give meaning that it didn't have before. And so, yeah. It's just, I, I really thought that when I listened to a podcast with somebody else, that I, I learned from them because it's something I didn't know. But you can learn from yourself 24 hours later, listen to the stuff that you said, and you learn things that you didn't know at the time. Yeah. It's amazing. Good.
1: Pretty crazy. All right. Yeah. Let's get started.
0: Let's do it.
1: All right. So um, what I thought I would just firstly do for um, anybody listening in is just let's do a quick recap of what we went through uh, last episode. So we started off on a bit of a journey, uh, you know, just the start of humanity, (laughs) anywhere (laughs) between 250 to 500,000 years ago. So no, no tall order. Um, But we went through... Um, a basic exploration of understanding what we were, or like basically what we were working for through the Paleolithic, then the agrarian, and now the industrial industrial age. Well, I should probably say then industrial and now the information age, but we didn't get to that point. Um, and we looked, we, we put a lens on the production and distribution uh, and equality and how that played itself out through each of those major stages. Uh, and then we got to a point where we finally started to explore the concept of what is this element of the rising tide versus uh, unfair or corrupt inequality. And that's what finally brought us to Marxism. <laughs> and so we realized that uh, we're probably going to need a little bit more time to unpack this. Uh, so, to start things off today, I actually want to talk about something that uh, Stephen West explores uh, in. Like fantastic detail in the podcast, but I'm going to try and do my own uh, uh, arbitrage uh, or um, like whittled down version of it, uh, and it's on Nietzsche's writings um, on the concept of God is dead. So this was uh, done very early in the 20th century. Um, Nietzsche put out a, a seminal piece of work, uh, exclaiming that God and hence religion uh, has died, and so you know people would often misinterpret this as a anti-religious nihilist just triumphantly proclaiming that God dead. Um, but that's not actually close to what he was saying. Um, he gets to the very core of the human uh, problem or the universal human problem. So you can think of whenever we have one, uh, based on our environment, we go about solving it. So if you think about uh, historically ways in which different cultures have come up with their own versions of the solution is how do we Move heavy loads. Well, if you live in a, a forest area, you might use trees. If you, um, you know, live in a farmland, you might use animals to help you. But we all come up with similar solutions to the same problems. Well, what Nietzsche was supposing was that we actually came up with or utilized religion to solve another universal human problem, and that was every human being asking at some point, "What is the point of their life?" Uh, and so this. Uh, he would suggest served a very strong purpose for a very long time. However, what came along was the Enlightenment period. Uh, So the period of Enlightenment was basically from the days of Copernicus, um, you know, who who realised that we were not at the centre of the universe, the the Earth revolved around the sun, uh, where science started coming into more and more uh, of the explanations around our understandings of the world. And so Nietzsche... Was writing that it's no longer tenable for us as a human race to live in a world where we have both reason or scientific reason, I should say, and at the same time this, uh, I guess, indoctrinated belief in a uh, in a religious set of principles that can't be in harmony with it. So, like, this this is what got me thinking. Like, so, like, okay, so we can see this. Pull happening with this, uh, you know, people today who are very scientifically minded think religion is this bane, this curse, and this really, really bad influence on the world. But I ask myself, like, does that really fit truly? Do I think religion has been a net net positive or net net negative uh, influence on the world? And if I had to uh, like, if I had to explore it honestly, I think it's been net net positive. Uh, I mean, like that's not discounting the atrocities of, um, you know, that have gone throughout history of humanity, like the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, and even more recently, the abuse of Catholic priests on um, on children, uh, and then the you know other religions like paganism, Islam, and Judaism, and uh, all the bad things that have happened to them. But at its foundation, I believe it has actually served a very utilistic purpose, uh, and like what Nietzsche was suggesting it was this element that helped us to cooperate beyond the, you know, the Paleolithic and tribal period where we were just small villages of 150. We needed something to help us band together beyond 150 people to 1,500, 15,000, 150 to million. Um, and I would also say it became the prime arbitrator of ensuring people would, what we would talk about later on as betraying their own passion for the greater, of, uh, for the greater good of civilization.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I think one of the questions you asked was, you know, is the religion net net a positive? Um, and I think you need to think about it in the context of when it sort of rise arose. rose. Um, so someone said, um, if there's poverty, there will be religion. Um, and I think that um, for a long time, you know, religion was trying to help answer questions for people. You know, where did the mm. world come from? How did I live? Blah, blah, blah. And so before the Gutenberg press, um, like 500 years ago, books were very expensive. They had to be written by hand. And some people say that when books got cheaper, that's sort of when the enlightenment happened because you could have knowledge that had been, you know, there was scientific knowledge that was created, but it wasn't really disseminated much. And so it was harder to have this accumulation of knowledge go if books were so expensive. Mm. And so if it's versus nothing, so there's no instruction, there's no uh, schools. So schools from a public perspective came along in the 1870s in the UK first. So there's just humans, I don't know, wandering around, you know, hunter gathering or, or farming the land. Um, the only real instruction they got um, was going to church or going to you know religion. I know there's different you know religions or mosques etc. And they were getting some sort of moral instruction like you know be good to thy neighbor etc. Um, versus nothing. And so I think that what it was before. I think some religions obviously good, some religions bad. Not all parts of all religions good. Mm-hmm. But I think it's probable like 500 years ago that I don't know in Europe. Christianity was probably a net positive. Now, i are not saying that there aren't bad parts, or I'm not saying, but I think that as we got to have new ways of getting information, like we could buy a book, it used to be possible. There are more books, you know, there are schools, um, that some of the jobs that religion did were actually placed in other, you know, areas. And so, mm. I still think there are benefits to religion today. Um, mm. An example would be close-knit communities. Uh, I think that people can have this and I think that some people don't have anywhere near that close-knit community stuff. But I also think that there are some not positives and (laughs) that, that I think you could live a good life being religious, but you could also live a good life being not religious today. Um, whereas I think 500 years ago, being not religious, you would have been excommunicated from the church (laughs) and you wouldn't have any friends, so I think it was probably not good. So I think we're sort of shifting from it being definitely, or not definitely, likely a positive Mm. to it being less and less likely a positive, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, Um, and that's actually an interesting, uh, I guess, uh, polarity that, you know, even as much as 50 uh, years ago, religion had a much stronger hold over how we operated as a society. You know, like you said, Duncan, if you were not behaving as part of um, the church, you would be ostracized
0: from your uh, community. You'd be excommunicated. That's not like, no, that, yeah. and that was like literally shunned from the yeah. whole of society. Shunned. Yeah. Love
1: that word, shunned. Excommunicated
0: <laughs> is a good word. I like that too. That,
1: that is too. Very good word. Duncan gets uh, two points for the best words. <laughs> um, I have the best um, words. And so while that does happen in some communities today, oh, a lot, lot less. Um, and so this is what Nisa was observing at the turn of the 20th century is that with the Age of Enlightenment coming more into the, um, the mass uh, of um, awareness of um, the majority of people, he was not talking about God as dead as the literal death of a deity. He was talking about the death of humanity's pursuit for moral objectivity. Um, and so what was really scary, and this is why I say scary, because he was able to predict that just because we were now slowly doing away with religion, it's not like we're all just going to live harmoniously and go to science fairs every weekend. He saw that we were going to try and fill that void with something, and he said it was going to be ideology. And so that's what brought on the the, the turn of the 20th century and things like World War One and Two, around particular ideologies as well. So there was a crisis of purpose, and so what we were looking at is people no longer being... Uh, held to a religious doctrine, but now being held to a particular ideology.
0: Yeah, um, there's a few interesting points I think you made there. Um, So when, um, I don't know, religion started to not be 100% of people or whatever, and in some people going down, part of what was replacing it was the schooling system. Mm, So again, there was no public schooling system. And as the Industrial Revolution happened, the first schools, I think, were in the UK in the 1870s, and I think it was three years And now, you know, most countries, it's like 12 years or something. Um, But were they teaching all of the things that the religion was teaching? And some people would say, no, that they were teaching mainly like maths and science. And, you know, they were doing some of the classics, you know, you read Shakespeare or something. But that religion may have had more of a focus on the moral side of things, you know, how Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, be good to thy neighbor, etc. Than the, the schooling system. And so there was somewhat of a vacuum. Or not as much moral instruction, if you want to call it that, yeah. in the sort of new thing, and people needed to make up their own views. And some people are good at that, and perhaps others are not so good at it. <laughs> um, and and so all else equal, you know, I think with most changes, there's some good and there's some not good. So, but all else, is, is it better to, to have this than not? Um, and so I think he was Nietzsche was sort of saying that the death of God may have some good and some not good. Mm.
1: Yeah. So I think what. Uh, like what this brought us to was so people were now asked, like they're having a crisis of conscience. Was, uh, well, I guess put it differently. How, it, like I just personally, I just feel so comfortable when there is something in my life where someone else can just come in and just tell me what the answer or what to, to do or what the answer is. Like how many times have you, um, you know, been at the early stage of your career and just wish that, you know, your manager could just tell you what you need to do in order to be a good employee, you know, just like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. (laughs) Um, And, you know, to be able to have the answer um, given to you so that you can, uh, you know, go about, uh, I guess, being an effective or a valuable person. And I think um, it, it seems like that's what religion did for a lot of people. Uh, and in a, in my own life like when i was looking into religious texts it 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 felt like it was providing a lot of answers for things that you 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 explore deep down inside of yourself and it can be quite overwhelming
0: mm. um there's a point that you said sort of from before which i thought i'd pick up on the previous one which is that that possibly religion starting to recede had something to do with the, the world wars um, that, that happened. Um, mm. And I think that... I'm not saying that there was no part, but I think there were many other variables. Um, so, for World War One, you know, there was the uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand killed in a sort of a second-tier um, empire, and then all of a sudden, a month later, all of Europe's at war. Mm. Um, and this was, I think, typical... <laughs> there have always been wars since, since like, I recorded history. And you had the, you know the German Kaiser and the Austro-Hungarian Empire... And the Russians are, and you know the French and, and, and everything you know, um. And this don't I don't think necessarily was because of religion per se. Mm. There's always been rulers as well, like you know whatever it was, you know. There's there's like the head of the church and there's the head of the state, um. And they've always decided for some reason and many different reasons <laughs> to go to war. And I don't think it was necessarily any different, um. Then I don't think that religion receding was really what sort of happened. Why was World War One, however, much more deadly than previous wars? They had new tools. <laughs> mm. So for instance for the first time ever they had trains and so they could m- m- transport mass amounts of humans around and then have a much more high, you know scale big scale war than before. Mm. Yeah. And so I don't think that religion sort of not being you know a- as prevalent is necessarily the only part. Maybe yeah. it is a part, but in my opinion it's, it's probably a very small part.
1: Yeah. I think that uh, that's a fair point. So I should probably do a better job of trying to clarify um, that particular um, concept. So, uh, no, that, To your point, it's not the, that religious religion receding in its influence in the world um, would have even a direct correlation to um, you know, the increase in wars in general through World War One and Two at uh, the 20th century. But with the re- recession of a religious uh, influence, something else would come in to fill that void. Um, I, I can't remember who it was that said, but they, they observed that most wars were based on economics. So that's either land, resources, um, all of these kind of things that would uh, a, a group of people would do in order to ensure their own survival. And... When you looked at what happened, but like, I don't know, I, I, I've heard the story about um, Franz Ferdinand, um, because I googled why the band called themselves
0: Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I, I must admit that the first time I heard Franz Ferdinand, I, I had no idea, because the band from the early 2000s, yeah, yeah. about Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who, yeah. you know, was part of the austro gon Empire. I hope, too, that I've learnt some things in the last 15 or 20 years, um, yeah. the better I've. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, um, I don't know, apart from that, I don't know much about what happened in World War I, um, but what I read um, in tandem with these uh, amazing uh, podcast episodes this week was looking at the the ideology that was spreading in World War Two. that... Uh, like Adolf Hitler in particular would able to um, cultivate and then exploit within the German populace. So uh, yes, yeah, so to, to try and wrap that up, it's not that because religion went away in a, d- a certain degree that then we were having more wars. It was because what we were then filling that void up with, which was this concept of um, ideologies, so that that would be how the um, people would now identify themselves within groups. And so, And to your point, the advancement of technology, uh, we were able to kill
0: ourselves far more effectively. Um, would also play a role as well. Yeah. Um, again, I think there's partially truth to what you say, but I don't think that there have not been ideologies before. They had the Great Crusades. Like, it's not like there weren't wars beforehand, for better or worse. There was crap type of wars. There was the Hundred Year War, you know, in Europe and other things. So, you know, then there was I don't know what we say, you know, Napoleon was doing and he was able to convince his, you know, people or, you know, Frenchmen to go and, you know, try and conquer as much of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that as far as they can sort of see, you know, go back to the Roman times or wherever more, there's like, let's go and take some land. Um, yeah. And so I just don't think that the receding of religion necessitated that there would be a, a space for this. No, people no, no, have no, always okay. been able to co-opt other humans into going, yeah. as far as they can see, as mass as possible, and you know, doing yeah. bad things to each yeah. other.
1: No, sorry. To be to be fair, we have always been a warfaring species. <laughs> the crusades, crusades, is a very good example of that. Hundred Year War. Um, I will say that those were predicated on religious doctrine, or at least they were justified by those. Um, I, so, I don't think that's so, fair
0: either. I, I really don't think that there's that. that yeah, that is crusades, it, it was to reclaim. Their, oh, some of them, but like all wars. No, no um,
1: that's yeah. what I. Sorry, that's what I tried to say earlier. Um, most wars were economically based, the of yep. survival of your own um,
0: group. Uh, and now I've already forgotten the point I was going to try and make. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll give um, you one. If you switch topics slightly, um, I was thinking like, how could you make a steel man argument about religion? Mm. I.e. what's the strongest possible explanation for wanting to do it? And I sort of touched on this before. I think really good quality relationships in life is one of the keys to living a good life. You want to quickly and, clarify
1: Steel Man so that we
0: Ah, uh, so Steelman is making the strongest possible version of an argument and straw man is making the weakest possible version. So if you were gonna say, I don't know, the weakest possible version, uh in, in the Bible it says that thou you know two men should not sleep together. Therefore, throw out hundred percent of Christianity. And and I would say that there's some good bits in the Bible and there's some not good bits. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I think part of the problem with religion is that there's some fundamentalists who believe 100% of it and they're not necessarily asking. And so, do I think there's some interesting stuff that Nietzsche said? Yeah. Do I think there's some bad stuff he says? Yeah. Do I think that I will look back on a lot of what I think now and change my mind about it? I certainly hope so, you know? And so, I think that... There are good bits in religion and there are bad bits, um, just like in everything. And to give you another example, like a scientific theory, there was, you know, Einstein with relativity. There were problems with it. It only worked at a large scale. It didn't work for quantum mechanics. So there were problems with it. So this is not just religious doctrine. It's scientific doctrine. It's, mm. it's everything doctrine. And so I suppose my approach tries to be, well, there's something right and wrong about almost everything. Try to figure out what that is. Take the good bits and figure out the bad bits and don't let them, you know, run you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it even goes to um, in, a, in a in a certain sense, like Darwinian theory of natural selection. Like, religion has played such a prominent role in the uh, progression of you know civilization for the past five to ten thousand years. So, if it was just downright um, negative and you know counterproductive, then that doesn't explain how it's been so prevalent as part of our um, human evolution. Um, so that's, and, and I'm not saying that that explains it um, indefinitely, but you can, um, you know, to try and, as you said, Duncan, create a steel man argument. You can't discount the fact that it has been very central to the concept of us building, um, you know, a civilization around uh, religious doctrine.
0: I totally agree. It's been around um, and it was not just in one place. You can look at friggin' everywhere. Yeah. They had religions yeah. of whatever it is. <laughs> um, and so... This it's it's I think hard to think that all these different people and this is some places where they you know they're locked off from a land perspective you know so that they'd sail across the sea and they'd never you know encountered you know whatever else it is in you know, in Africa from North America or something yeah. and there'd be religion of some kind so you go to the you know the Aztecs in South America and they hadn't you know had time to like oh let's get this idea of religion from five thousand years ago <laughs> so it's so it was sort of people were using it it was a tool to help yeah. but I think you know Tools hopefully improve. And so anyways, yeah. quickly, yeah. the steel man argument, I think, that I can think of, one of the best ones is this community point. Yeah. And, and I feel that uh, for a lot of people um, in the modern day, and they are sorry this with a loneliness epidemic and other things, they don't necessarily have good quality close bonds, e.g. a reason to catch up every week and to talk about things and to share. Um, and that I think religion done well can have that. Um and that, yeah, that's sort of my strongest point. And I wanted to see what you think your strongest point is, but also if you think you have as much community in your life as you would want, James.
1: Hmm. Um, well, so I think definitely for me, religion has served a utilistic property of organizing groups greater than 150 people. And I use 150 as, um, as an arbitrary number, uh, thinking about when we were just in the Paleolithic period as, as hunters and gatherers and tribes. Uh, And so what what was it that helped us move to the larger scale groups of people and how do we organise ourselves around a central idea? Um, So for me, the steel man argument is that religion is one of the things that has allowed us to come together and build greater um, communities that end up being um, larger civilisations. Sorry, Duncan, Hmm. I've already forgotten the question you
0: asked. Uh, Do you think, you know, I think this is true um, that, I don't know, some people might have kinship with... Uh, if you're a Muslim oh. and you might have kinship with someone from another country yeah. because they're Muslim as well. Um, and so I think it has helped us have more community versus not having it. Mm. But I think what was – do you think, for instance, you have as much community in your life as you would like? Mm. And I think if you look at sort of concentric circles, there's like you. <laughs> then you might have family, which whatever, five people, let's say. But, you know, let's say you know, maybe you have an epically large family, you have 10 or something. Mm. And then there was Dunbar's number, which is that 150. And they say that you can know what's going on with 150. And I think that religion was quite good at doing community at 150 group level, where you know about people, not just I know that person's name, but you know about their life and you care and you support. And I think that people still have families, but I think that sort of 150-esque community, which like last night, because you you have a job, and I forgot what average job tenure is, but it's been going down, you know, and... Uh, some people, they're doing that job for money and they do not necessarily like their co-workers. You know? And so they don't have sort of community yeah. at that sort of 150 type level. Yeah, so I think like um, to answer your question from a
1: personal standpoint, I'm probably not going to do it much justice uh, because I'm in a very circumstantial part of my life. But I do want to express that I think community is not only just important, but I think it's central to our ability to continue to grow as a human race. So I think it's very, very much part of... um what could make a very um, rich and uh, enjoyable, um, you know, life for any one person to be part of a greater uh, group of people. And um, that's what they, that's what, um, you know, people at the Frankfurt School, which we'll get into in just a moment, hopefully. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, ten, ten
0: episodes later, still not at the Frankfurt School.
1: Were really critical of, in the earliest 20th century, about how people would actually... Uh, 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 adopt the group mentality before the individual so they would actually go along with the the nazi um, doctrine or the communist manifesto and then turn around and say well i had no individual freedom i had to do what i was told because i was part of this group who were doing such atrocious things and so these, um, the thinkers in the Frankfurt School were saying, well, no, you always have individual autonomy. You always have individual um, freedom to act in the way in which you think is in the best interest of yourself and those around you. So I do think community is very important. And I do think that this is something that's programmed deeply within our brains, um, as we have discussed earlier um, in another episode about how part of this cooperation piece is what's enabled us as the human species to evolve well beyond any of our counterparts. So yes, communities are very important.
0: Yeah, so if you look at the different concentric circles, so there's you, then there's maybe your immediate close friends. So they say you can be really good friends with up to 10 people, like know everything that's going on. Um, and that might be your family. And so James is one of my very close friends. Then there's like the 150-person community level where you can know a bit about like something that's going on. And then you've got communities or another circle beyond that, which might be like a country, as an example. And so what I think has happened is that the individual one might have gotten better because we've got, I don't know, the internet and other things. You can spend lots of time by yourself much more easily now. Family is not too dissimilar as what it was. But I think community is very different. You might have mm. been part of your family as, as the tribe or as in a little village, whatever, 200 years ago, and you knew all the friggin' neighbors and you helped raise your children. You know, So if you, you had like five nannies the whole time because your neighbors all helped, you helped them when, when you, uh, and, and they helped you. Whereas now, most people's neighbors, like they don't know their names. They're not helping raise the children. Like it took a village to raise a child. It actually was a village raising a child. Mm. So mm. for me, you might have community um, a little bit, but it's not like, the community as in the physical community like yeah. hey yeah. what you're sharing cooking or you're sharing child managing or re- managing rearing <laughs> you don't rear children you raise them <laughs> god i got a, ma- child management how's your child management going or how are you rearing, rearing your calves god i just got those words so anyways um from my perspective, there it's has available been. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, there's a reason why I'm available for babysitting. Should not do babysitting. <laughs> um, so basically, I think we're better at an individual, and we're better at a family, but we're worse at a community. Let's call yeah. that the, the, your, the, the people that you. Say. So it's not just like oh I I go to church once a week. It's like the people that you live next to, are effectively strangers for most people. Yeah. But, and then I think we're also better at like a country level, but that community level. It's really friggin' important, mm. and I think that we can hopefully get better at it again. Yeah. Um, but I think that's partially what a, a, a church or, or a religion might be able to help with, and that I think this is where a big part of the um, loneliness is coming from, is that specific lens of that sort of 150 community-type level.
1: Yeah, um, and so I think this could be a very good segue into Marxism itself. <laughs> really?
0: how, how does how does community of 150 go into Marxism?
1: Let me I'm on here, segue segue away. Let me try and break it down for you. So this yeah. brings us, this, this brings us to Marxism. First of all, what right. is Marxism? Very good question. So um, I it, don't know. It's an economic and social system based upon uh, a political theory brought forward by Karl Marx and his good friend uh, Frederick Engels. I think that's his name. <laughs> um, but it's basically. I mean, it looks at the antithesis, antithesis of the capitalist system, where the dominant feature is public ownership and the means of production, distribution, and exchange. So, what he's purporting that instead of there being the um, uh, the what's the word? Thinking, the, the the libertarian view, where each person can produce their own value, he purports that to each their own production, to the group their own need. And it's it's essentially uh, looking at having the government distribute the wealth to everybody equally. And that by doing that, there would be, first of all, no inequality, uh, no oppression, and everybody would be able to work together as a group collective in raising the standards of their society. So that's a very butchered version. Like, trust me, even as you go to Wikipedia page, you don't really fully get the comprehensive. Um, Mm Doug, you might be able to do it better than I did if you want to have a go.
0: First of all, I'm sure that what I'm going to say is wrong, uh, and I'm sorry for the people that actually understand this. Um, Here is my understanding. So capitalism was sort of rising. Uh, You had, I don't know, the Industrial Revolution going on in the UK and in, you know, America and other places in Central Europe, and so Marx was um, alive in sort of 1800s, mainly when this was sort of coming up, I believe, and he thought that basically workers were being taken advantage of. So there was a new business and the capital owners or the business owners were making huge amounts of money. And you did have like the wealthiest people of all time with the, you know, the rubber barons, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Vanderbilt, etc. And that this was unfair. So that the working class, so there were owners of businesses and workers or the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And that they were being basically uh, taken advantage of. And he thought that a better scenario was instead of there being business owners, that you would have the state own the business, i.e. the government, and that then instead of the percentage of the pie going to the top being massive, you would be able to share it better with the workers, i.e. the proletariat, and you would get a better outcome. Mm. The problem is that what we've seen is that no system's perfect. No one's trying to say this. That unfortunately when they've tried Marxism, because it's a lovely idea, like who doesn't want better outcome? Yeah,
1: That's <laughs> actually the, be a really good point. Like Marxism yeah. is not inherently evil. <laughs> uh, it's got a very bad rap But what they were trying to do Was bring in a utopia Where everybody could live harmoniously in, um, And uh, uh, and have a wonderful life So there is, I think as, as For me, sorry to interrupt you Duncan um, When I first went about Trying to understand Marxism I had already generated a, Such a negative connotation To its found, founding principles Let alone how it actually played out Which is actually where it just goes awry
0: Yeah uh, so, so just to, you know, basically, we sort of talked about this before, like, um, there's, a, there's a spectrum, I don't know, from people at the top of the wealth income to people at the bottom. Did the people at the bottom have a better outcome on average, now not everyone, than, you know, under industrialization than they did under the agrarian, you know, your, your, so you were working for the person who owned the land, or there was a landowner, and then you worked for the person who owned the factory, and you were the factory worker. And now there were some people that had horrible jobs like in coal mines, etc. So I'm not saying every job, but all else equal, they had increasing standards of living. So, you know, wealth and other things. What I think Marx was saying was, well, is there a better system than this? And can we, for instance, give the people at the bottom more than they have in the capitalist industrial model? Mm. And his thoughts were, yes, instead of you having the business owners own it, you have the government or the state, and then they give a bigger percentage of the pie to the people at the bottom. What I think is fair to say is that when they've tried this, their pie has not grown bigger. So the pie has shrunken because there isn't necessarily the same ability to implement. Now, I'm not saying all businesses are good, but on average, look at the, you know, wealth income <laughs> changes that occurred under this model. So after World War II finished, you had East Germany and West Germany, one under a communist model and one under a sort of capitalist, you know, liberal uh, democracy model. And they had to build a wall to stop people leaving East Germany to go to, or East Berlin to go to West Berlin, to keep them in. Now, say what you want about capitalism, and there's a lot of things that need to be improved. But they're not built walls to keep people in. Look at America. It's in the worst state it's in, or possibly since Nixon, right? And they're building a wall to keep people out, not in. And so, again, no one's saying capitalism is perfect. Yeah. No one's saying Marxism. But for better or worse, the abilities of the, the the people that have tried, I think it's been for, for the average you know worker, yeah. much worse under Marxism than under capitalism.
1: Yeah. So, um, so it's good to clarify that um, when looking at a subjective, uh, we we should remember that Marxists are not evil. <laughs> um, they're not to be confused with the communist or the Stalinist ideologues of the 1930s. Um, they're generally people who genuinely envision a better world, one where people are not exploited or oppressed and where we can actually live in harmony. Um, so this is where we get to the Frankfurt School. And the Frankfurt School were just a bunch of intellectuals who were around at the same time, uh, in the uh, like the earliest 20th century up to the 1950s, who still are Marxists. They strongly believe in a world where Marxism um, could flourish, but they're very critical of the initial premise that Marx put forward. Uh, and the two major ones that Duncan's kind of touched on is that it first does not talk enough about the concept of personal liberty and it doesn't go enough to consider the individual. So that goes back to your point about the shrinking pie. Because if you don't consider the individual, then where is the incentive for people to want to actually grow the economy if they don't see it actually affecting them individually?
0: Yeah. Um... It's super interesting. Um, so I think it started just after World War I in Germany, uh, and then it sort of continued sort of through most of the 1900s. Um, and the first part was, so after World War I, um, most of the monarchs in Europe fell. So the German Kaiser was gone, the Habsburg Empire, you know, Austro-Hungarian was gone. I've forgotten exactly when the Russian Tsar fell, but pretty close. And then what you had is typically a democracy you put in place. Um, and then you had these democracies falling. Um, and there's many reasons why, but I think one of the key things is you had the Great Depression that occurred, which was epic economic mismanagement, and I think you also had the Treaty of Versailles, which was what happened after World War One. They forced the Germans to pay to fix all the things, uh, you know, that they'd gone and, like, I don't know, wrecked parts of France, so they had to pay to fix parts of France, as an example, and all the other places they went around. And it caused a mess, mega economic depression to occur. And if everyone, the 30% unemployment, you know, et cetera, et cetera, people are not happy. Hmm. Um, and so out of this, um, people, you know, think what should happen? Well, a Marxist revolution, which is on the left, but what happened in places like Germany, which is where start started the Frankfurt School, <clears throat> was went to the right, authoritarianism. And so they were commenting like, oh, hang on, I thought we were going to become communists, not fascists. Um, and, I, you know, I think, you know, it's a really, really interesting sort of thing. But I think the key thing which people don't look at enough is that when econ- economic situation gets really bad, people lose faith in the current system. Mm. And they typically go left or right, left communism, right fascism. That's what's happening now.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was that um, that was that was key to what was happening uh, when Marxist was originally outlining um, his core premises, was this... Uh, prophecy that he had that there was going to be a rebellion um, between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Um, and the Frankfurt School were very interested in the fact that it never happened. They were like, why Why was there no uprising? Why was there no rebellion? Uh, and this goes back to how they looked at previous wars where there was this tension between um, the upper and lower classes. And, um, oh God, it was a really good, uh, I think it was... Uh, Camus or um, one of the other Frankfurt uh, School philosophers who talks about how there is always a thesis, an antithesis and then synthesis. <laughs> the thesis is the, um, is the current state of the world. Then there is a force that goes against it, which is either an uprising or a revolution. Uh, and then there is the synthesis, which is now the new ruling class, the new normal. And then this would actually happen in perpetuity. And so they predicted or they prophesied that a new um, revolution
0: would come in. Yeah, um, I think well, there definitely were revolutions after World War One, between you know yeah. maybe you don't call that, but like I don't know, the rise of the authoritarian Nazi states, you know Mussolini, um, you know the uh, in, in Italy, um, you know the communist you know is in Russia. But I think it also continued after World War Two, um, and they were like, well, hold up, why isn't there another sort of breaking down of the system going on, and why are people like loving this? You know, liberal democracy, sort of capitalist style thing, um, and they were trying to explain it, and because th- they didn't think it made sense, is my interpretation of what I've understood. Mm. And their their explanation, I think, was that this totalitarian regime was the most insidious of all because the people in it, the proletariat, the working class, had been taught to love their chains. Yes, that they did not even understand that they were being exploited, that they were willingly part of this system Mm. and this is a really really like refined argument but i don't think it's necessarily been proven to be true Mm. um and so i think again were people now no one's ever uh, maybe there'll be some utopia in the the future where everyone has all of what they need and perfect freedom etc but was it better than what it was Uh, are, are we getting progress and is progress split fairly across the entire spectrum of society and i think that you saw uh, you know, massive rising uh, income. Uh, you know, uh, across society. You know, people having houses, people having cars. You know, now more people eat meals out than eat in. You know, that wasn't the case. You know, um, and you saw the the people behind the Iron Curtain certainly not having the same living standards. Again, communism isn't perfect, capitalism isn't perfect. Mm. But I I think that their argument that there would be a I don't know communist uprising in, in Germany after World War Two and America, but people didn't know it yet um, because there were Indoctrinated to love their chains, whilst interesting, I don't think it's fair. Yeah,
1: so um, that's um, so that would what uh, precisely what the Frankfurt School uh, would argue that th- this this uh, phenomenon of loving their, their chains, what they was what they call class consciousness, um, and so they were saying that the workers of the West were sort of like they were bewitched in the sense that all of this uh, exponential growth and technological advancement that came with capitalism was just completely um, you know overwhelming in the sense that these changes were bringing about new standards of living were bringing about new stuff that people could actually uh, acquire under a consumerist culture uh, and so uh, and it was also um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll come I'll come up with his name later but there was the, uh, the two um, they' the Orwellian the um, dystopia and then there's the other one and the other one was talking about a dystopia where we become a primarily consumerist society that all of our um, you know latent desires or needs are basically met by uh, consumption uh, so th- this was to that point why there wasn't a, a rebellion to go back to the Marxist doctrine and why we continued going forward with the capitalist and democratic uh, version of how we operate in an ideological world
0: sort of looking at this like am i indoctrinated and i don't know it and or (laughs) you know at least i don't think i am like no i'm free um uh, one sort of this is like and i know that we live in australia and i think australia has one of the better functioning you know uh sort of systems um you know do i want to live in the past like no
1: um (laughs) i
0: actually asked my parents this they're sort of almost 70 they're like no um so, I'm sure there are some people that want to. <laughs> um, but I think that all else equal. Now, um, you know, there are definitely people that do go you know backwards. But is the vast majority of people in a better place than what it was 50 years ago? Uh, I think the answer is probably yes. And so, I don't think that there is an insidious totalitarian regime where we've been taught to love our chains. I think if you are getting a better outcome than what people were, mm. then this is actually a positive sum Uh, Engagement, you know, you are part of society, but society is helping you, you know, and everyone sort of wins. Now, I think the big debate at the moment is, well, what percentage of the pie goes where? And I think it's fair to say that too much is going to the top, in my opinion, and I I think that there should be more redistribution that goes on. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. That was who I was thinking of. So Huxley versus Orwellian um, dystopian futures. So Huxley was talking about how um, we're not going to grow up in a, well, we're not going to end up in a oppressive Future where there is a, um, an overseeing big brother who controls our lives. We're going to grow up in a future where everything is um, disseminated through abundance of over-information and over-consumerization mm-hmm. and we're just become, going to become like these placid, um, consumerist, uh, non-critical thinking blobs of matter. Um, but going back to uh, the other point in terms of this element of Yes, we don't live in a totalitarian society where there is some kind of um, insidious I think it's a totalitarian.
0: Totalitarian. totalitarian. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I love how they give like Donald Trump misspeaks all the time, and then they'll pick it up on whatever you know shows. If I was recorded, I, <laughs> I honestly don't know if I get like more than one sentence out without a misspeak in it. It's really not good.
1: I gotta say, oranges is like yeah, that's pretty good. That's that, pretty that's good. That's impressive. Orange is impressive. the new black. <laughs> oh, uh, we'll have to find the origin, orange of that orange statement. Yeah. Um, okay, so the, yes, the, the, we, we're not living in a totalitarian, totalitarian <laughs> society um, with an insidious over ruler. Um, but the the Frankfurt School uh, intellectual would argue it's much worse than that. Uh, what we're actually in is a collection or a set of systems that are set up in such a way to perpetuate this type of oppression that they would call it, where the system rewards people to accumulate their own wealth. And it also rewards this mentality that you live in a society where you are a producer, so you you wake up, you go to work, you work hard, and then you come home. You're exhausted because you don't like the job. And then you want to feed that exhaustion with um, entertainment or enjoyment or something that you can consume and so they're saying that yes you don't live in north korea but what you're living in is a world that convinced you that you are just fine the way you are or your life is just fine the way it is even though you're not aware of how it's actually been augmented for you without you being able to see how it could be done differently
0: one thing i think it's worth pointing out is that i think people have this stark contrast like capitalism communism Mm. i think that you know, when the, I don't know, industrial revolution started, there weren't really any rules. Um, so there was no income tax, as an example, there was no company tax, there was no insider trading, there was no minimum wage, there's no, you know, environmental regulations. Um, but slowly over time, we've had more and more regulation happen, we've had, you know, no government paid schools, no government paid healthcare, no government paid welfare, if you lose your job, etc, etc. And so I think what we'd learn is that their regulation, good regulation is good and bad regulation is bad, but not saying no regulation versus regulate everything. So some would say capitalism, no regulation, communism, 100% regulation. Mm. And I think that you see the government running some things makes sense. Like I think they are good to have government schools. Now some school, government schools are much better than other ones, (laughs) Um, but I don't think the government should run anything, everything I should say. Um, Mm. And, and, you know, for instance, should there be regulation for the banking industry? I think very clearly so. The GFC shows, I think, that there wasn't enough regulation. and So (laughs) I think that we are attempting to find this right middle ground to figure out having enough freedom but not so much freedom that, for instance, you can just go and pollute the environment wherever you want, that you can steal from somebody, it doesn't matter, that you can, you know, make a business and someone can come along and just copy your IP without, you know, an ability to have a return on the investment that you spent to to build that IP. So for me... I don't think we are in a straight-on, you know, quite like libertarian capitalist society where there's minimal rules. Yeah. I think there's actually more and more rules every friggin' year. And some of those rules no longer make sense. Like, they, they made sense 100 or 50 years ago or 20 years ago. But we also need some new rules because the world has changed. And yeah. so I think we're actually, like, halfway between no rules and 100% rules. And the the the, the, the idea that we don't have and that rules are bad, I think, is, is not good.
1: Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And I think that actually cuts out one of the core problems we have whenever we try to address this concept of communism versus capitalism, is that in their very essence, those two concepts exist at the very edges of the spectrum. Like, if you're pure populism, co- communism, you're over there. I, I say copulism. Like copulism? You're <laughs> copulating. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, and that's what that was drawing. a really good mess-up. <laughs> copulism? <laughs> So communism oh, exists
1: in the far side and capitalism at the, the other end. But no, like we don't live in those two extremes. It's somewhere in the middle. But by labelling them as, a, well, this is either a communist thing or this is a capitalist, capitalist thing, people instinctively go to those extremes. Um, there was a really, really good book uh, by uh, I think Ishraj Manji. Uh, she's um, oh, Say that again. Ishrad
0: Manji. All right. I don't know how to say that, but I'm hoping that you're wrong. I'm hoping somebody's <laughs> laughing. I burst out laughing. Go on. Um,
1: but um, So this is more on an individual level, but she wrote a book called Don't Label Me and about how labeling actually creates a um, like a, a sort of cognitive dissonance where you no longer understand the individual for all of their complexity. You just now label them as a certain identity and then that's the extent of your understanding of that person. It's the same, I believe, for capitalism and communism. If you just label something as communist, then suddenly you have uh, prevented yourself from being able to understand the more nuanced details of what the actual principles and possible um, benefits a communist approach can provide. And that's why we need to look at it in terms of like, well, where do we actually fit on this spectrum? And that's what we're still trying to figure out today.
0: Yeah, um... I like this sort of point, like, so things are frigging complicated. Um, Frigging complicated. Yeah, um, (laughs) it's not like, oh, capitalism bad. Well, what good communism? And again, we're sort of talking about this, you know, there's many different types of capitalism, many different types of communism. Um, Sort of talk about this. I think you you are also complicated. Um, And so you're some part individual, but you're also some part your tribes. So some part of you is your family, as an Mm. example. Mm. Some part of you is probably your sex. Some part of you is probably the country that you grew up in. Uh, some part of you might be the football team you're part of that you support. Like you know, um, some p- part of you might be the company you are. And so, I think that sort of identity politics is labeling people by their tribe. You're male, you're American, you're you know whatever else it is, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's not saying that being American means nothing, but it's not saying that it means everything. And yeah. so I think that it's a combination of both. Mm. Um, it's partially individual, partially tribal, but I think also that as uh, I think humanity, um sort of progresses, it used to be that you were much more similar um, from, you know, religion. You know, you went to the same church and you were sort of similar. But now pluralism, i.e. multiple beliefs, people, I think, are far more uh, unique in general. So there was monolithic blocks of tribes. Um, You know, one country was far more homogenous in the past Mm. than it is now. Like, you know, what it was to be, I don't know, Australian was far more homogenous 50 years ago than it is now and so i think we're slowly becoming more and more individual um and that's yeah it's, it's wrong to say oh well that person is you look at the color of their skin their sex and, and you know that where the, their socioeconomic bracket and you label a hundred percent of them now that's not none of them but it's not a hundred percent of them
1: yeah no absolutely um and that's kind of what we're seeing in this new like you know social justice worries and all of these people who are coming out um on the left who are as you have um, pointed out, Duncan, looking at the particular label, not as a point of furthering your understanding, but as a point of further identifying that if you are a white male, you are now discounted from the conversation, from the debate when we're talking about, you know, oppression in other races or in other genders or in other demographics. Uh, And so that kind of goes back to this labeling mentality that we have when we say like, well, You're talking about, you know, free education. Well, that comes under a socialist or communist doctrine. Therefore, you are a socialist or a communist. When, um, you know, people don't take enough time or, you know, we as humans don't take enough time to look beyond the label and try and understand, well, how does this actually fit into a wider spectrum of what it is that we're trying to achieve?
0: Yeah. um, My favourite quote, or not favourite, one of them from the last week is... Contrary to what populists on the left and populists on the right are saying, the unacceptable outcomes aren't from A, evil rich people doing bad things to poor people, or B, lazy poor people and bureaucratic inefficiencies. As much as they are to how the overall capitalist sort of you know democratic system is now working. And so that's from Ray Dalio, who we probably quote every single friggin' podcast. Um hopefully you can grow indefinitely as a person, you can learn things. I think the similar lens that our society can can improve indefinitely. Mm. And this means some things that worked 20 years ago mightn't work now. Um, but I think we've got to have hopefully the right way of looking at this, not yelling and screaming at other people, listening to others, knowing that what works for you might not work for others and not trying to tell them they have to live the way you do. Mm. And instead of trying to divide people, trying to come together and learn from each other but also learn to be tolerant and live with other people. And, and the thing that worries me sort of the most is I, I feel that, and there's stats on this, that people are becoming more combative. Um, the, the, the type of conversation is more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, con- you know, argumentative, less listening. Uh, and this, you know, conflict can escalate from verbal conflict into, you know, military. They, they say that war is diplomacy continued by other means. And <laughs> I, I, I would really hope that. That people can try to listen to each other more, um, yeah. and that quote that you brought up, James, I don't know that man. I must get to know him better. Lincoln, you know, I, I feel that the exact opposite of that. I don't know that man. I must go and yell at him and tell him why he's fucking wrong. And I don't. Sorry, I don't agree with that man. I must yeah. get to know him better. Yeah. I don't know that. I don't agree with that man. I must yell at him and tell him why he's wrong. I yeah. feel it's more about what's happening, and so we need to be more. Let's get to know them better.
1: Yeah. Um. I I, I totally agree, and I think this is what we're seeing this further and further the political divide. Um, to me, my take on it is that this is delving more into your identity as part of being part of an ideology. Um, and Jordan Peterson explained this, we've got to quote him as well, uh, explained this very well for me where he said, I know when someone is coming at me from the, the ideological standpoint, not their personal standpoint, but from the ideological, when what they are saying, I could Easily just lift and shift to any other person talking to me on, on this topic. So hmm. you're no longer thinking critically for yourself about what it is that you think is a valuable proposition. You are simply regurgitating those that have been put forward by whatever ideology you want to belong to. And that when people no longer have, a, like my reading of it, that's when people no longer have a more nuanced understanding of this playing field of the spectrum and they move more and more towards the edges where the ideology takes over the way they think um i think ben shapiro talks really well to the fact that you have to be as well versed in the other side's point of view as your own
0: this is charlie or well, charlie Munger too um <laughs> yeah, he's his a manga Munga's is yeah. the best You're gone.
1: <laughs> yeah um so i, I think manga is one which was like if i don't understand um the other person's uh, side Better than they do, then I don't understand. I don't have enough of an argument to put forward my own views.
0: Uh, yeah, to have your to have an opinion, you must understand the other side's opinion and be able to articulate it better than they can. So the work required to have an correct. opinion. Correct. Yeah.
1: And so we're not doing that, uh, or at least people who are moving more towards the edges are not doing that. They're just putting themselves in their echo chambers or in their bubbles, and that's that now in a flywheel of self-perpetuating more and more extreme uh, beliefs.
0: Yeah. Um. I thought maybe as a final question before we do um, summary, oh, is crap. there any things that you, you would want to change about the way that society is currently set up now? Now, this is really sketchy uh, uh, area for me because I don't think I have anyone near enough of an understanding. So I'm trying to go with like, well, what is the thing you have the most confidence about? And do you have enough confidence to say this? And I think this one I do. I think you can clearly see that inequality has gone up, whether that's incomes to the top 1% versus the bottom 60% or wealth. um, And that I think all else equal, that the people at the top don't necessarily need more money (laughs) um, (laughs) and that we can do more to help each other. And so if we actually sort of create the veil of ignorance from John Rawls and have everyone have this opportunity to become whatever they want to become, The more that that happens, the actual bigger the pie grows. So, if we allow as many people as possible to be able to come what they want, e.g. through having good education, good social safety net, etc., then everyone wins Mm. um, overall. Now, some of the people at the top might have slightly less money, uh, but... I don't think it really actually would affect their day-to-day life, yeah. um, but it would mean that their children and their grandchildren have a better society to live in. So all mm. else equal, I think we should be doing more redistribution. Yeah. and which channels should it go into? Um, I think that frankly, um, you know you can see some of the, the, the education system you know not working as well. Um, I think we should be thinking about climate change. I think we should be thinking about you know universal health care in the US and, and a bunch of other things. Um, how much and exactly how to do it? I don't know. Uh, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but more redistribution than we have, Yeah. exactly how we should change, you know, the education yeah. system, et cetera, that's, that's complicated. Yeah.
1: So um, really good question, by the way, Duncan. What I see um, the current uh, system that we have doing really well is the advancements of um, technology, that we have augmented our um, economy around creating better standards and better ways of living. And the result of that is that we are going through an extra ex- exponential growth in technological advancement because what I see as a a second third order effect of that is the liberation of um, particular groups of people Uh, like you know it's it's astounding when you think about the invention of the bicycle liberated women because they were now allowed to go able to go between different villages and not have to stay within their own village um, for their entire lives and had to you know marry the boy down the street, who could turn out to be her cousin. Um, <laughs> but now what we're seeing technology liberate is the information age, and it's starting to democratise education. So this is what I'm seeing, what I like about the current structure, that we do have this um, great proliferation of technology liberating people in numerous ways. Um, and I think you've kind of already touched on it in where we can improve things, is leveling the playing field not in equality of outcome uh, that's bad but in quality of opportunity so equality of opportunity i think would be something like everybody having the same access to a good education the same access to good health care um, because like you said like once you give people the foundations of a you know the potential of a good life you, you give them that safety net then they can have the opportunity to be as much as they can be or all that they want to be. Um, So that's what I think, um, that's what I'm optimistic that we're moving more and more towards because I think when you have self-reinforcing positive feedback, you just slowly but surely uh, curve towards that um, particular model. Um, I definitely think there are some countries that need a little bit of a kick up the ass, um, but that's what I would like to see more
0: of. Alright, summary time. Uh, I've also got to get out of here soon. Um, so first of all, Stephen West is awesome. <laughs> listen, <laughs> listen to Philosophize this. Stephen West. Um, Stephen West mm-hmm. um, is the best. <laughs> um, so um, The other um, point is, uh, this is a Will Durant quote that I like, when inequality gets too high, there's redistribution redistribution of wealth through regulation or redistribution of poverty through revolution. Mm. Inequality is the highest it's been since the 1930s and at that time they then had Medicare, uh, welfare, etc. sort of come on. And so I think that if we continue on this path, people are going to continue getting less happy with each other. And so redistribution is going to occur, uh, in my opinion. Um, Let's make it of the regulation, not revolution type. (laughs) Um, And so for me... um, yeah, I think you want to hopefully, you know, help make the world better. And, and I think that this means at this point some sort of redistribution.
1: Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So uh, where we got to today is at the, start, at the turn of the 20th century, um, Nietzsche proclaimed that God is dead. And that is not the literal death of a deity. That is the death of um, religion's hold over a commanding rule of how we, deserve the, how we as a society um, answer some of the uh, fundamental questions. And so what we're seeing in the wake of God's death is the, uh, the turn of ideology, ideologies. And I think we're seeing that rearest head now uh, in the, the more and more polarizing uh, fields of political discourse. I think um, by labeling things, by giving people um, rise to having self-reinforcing um, you know, echo chambers, is is dangerous in a way that we're not allowing enough of a debate or a discussion around where do we really see things um, being of benefit to how we operate as individuals and as society? This is not, in my mind, a debate between capitalism and communism or Marxism or fascism or um, different, you know, isms. This is what should be more of a debate of what do we think will push us forward in the best possible and
0: consistent way. Yeah. Woohoo! All right. Um, I've enjoyed this one. Um, It's amazing. Um, Yeah. Uh, You learn as you're speaking. Freaky. Um, But, anyways, I've got to run. James, I'll speak to you soon.
1: Ciao. Bye.